simply came up and, and she prayed just the sweetest prayer of you know, confession of her sin and just saying, Jesus, I, I, I wanna follow you the, the rest of my life. And it was just it was an absolutely beautiful thing. And just, uh, you know, I was telling Perry and Brenda, th- doing three of these messages, you get to the, you know, the third one, you're kinda like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm tired. And then something like that comes and just completely buoys your spirit. So, uh, you know, praise God for the good work that he uh, continues to do. Um, this morning, I want to take you back uh, to a, a Tuesday in 2010, specifically it was January 20th. It was a, a precisely 4.53 in the afternoon that a catastrophic 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit the poverty-stricken Car- uh, Caribbean island nation of Haiti. And in a matter of, of, of just a few moments... 300,000 people died. I mean, think about that for a second. There, there's roughly, in, in the greater central Pennsylvania area, that's about 300,000 people. That takes out the city of Harrisburg, pretty much most of Cumberland County and most of Dauphin County. Gone. On top of that, a million other people, a million other people were injured. Now, it didn't take long for, for news of, of this earthquake to begin to, to, to make its way throughout the various media outlets. All of a sudden, things start showing up on televisions. They start coming over the radio. They're on computer screens. They're on people's, people's iPhones that, that this, this hurricane had, had hit. And one of those people that, that, that saw this information was a guy by the name of, of Ken Watikin. And he's the owner of a small uh, flight training school in central Texas. And a few years earlier, Ken and several other volunteer pilots had had flown release supplies from Texas into uh, Louisiana and Mississippi during Hurricane Katrina. And so while all this is kind of uh, flowing, all this information's coming his way, it's kind of like deja vu. And Ken begins to ask himself, I wonder if... God wants me to do something to help the people in Haiti. And he went home and he talked to his wife and he received his wife's blessing and he called up uh, one of his former flight students, a guy by the name of Ken, and, uh, or Kurt, I should say, and, and they began to fly uh, relief missions from the Bahamas to Haiti. And for nine straight days... These guys would fly eight-hour round trips in, in a, a tiny little Beechcraft Bonanza plane. Uh, two guys, the back end where other four people would sit, just stuffed with cargo. Uh, they're flying across three different countries, three different island nations. They are flying over open water in a single-engine plane, which is always a dangerous thing to do. They're flying through uncertain weather. They're dealing with mindless bureaucracies when they land for fuel that they've got to fill out all these custom documents every day, even though they're showing up every single day. They're operating without flight clearances because basically all the air traffic control around Haiti has been completely decimated. They're basically making things up as they go along. And in the process, they're delivering all kinds of much-needed things. Uh, They're delivering uh, splints to be able to mend people's broken bones, surgical gloves, x-ray developing fluid, crutches, medicine. And they're going to all these little hospitals that kind of are dotted around the northern coast of Haiti. 
And on their final day, as they're preparing to depart, having done everything that they possibly could do, these exhausted aviators are approached by this young Haitian woman. She's an aid worker. She's in uh, like one of those uh, kind of old, what would appear to be like an old-fashioned here, at least in America, uh, white uh, habit that the nurses would wear. You know, now they wear scrubs, but this is, she was wearing kind of this more formal nursing clothing. And she had come to thank Ken and Kurt for all they've done. And, and as the three of them are standing on the airport tarmac in the midst of this beautiful Sunday morning, there are countless children that have lined up around the airport, around the fence of the airport, and they're begging for food. Now, they don't know what to say. They're racked with guilt. They, they, they don't want to leave with so much undone, but the problem is they've maxed out their credit card. They're, they're paying for this whole thing on their own. They're fueling these planes all by themselves. Their credit cards are maxed out. And so Ken asks this, this young woman, he says, Sister, how will this play out? How in the world will, will these poor people ever recover? This seems so incredibly hopeless. We've only like dented the surface. And as the young woman is considering her reply in the distance, Ken hears the sounds of singing. But it's not just any songs it's hymns. And you see there, on, on, just on the other side of the airport, lays the, the remains of this shattered church. And beside it, all of the people that were members of that church have gathered together on this little grassy piece of ground. They've lost everything. They are facing an uncertain future. And they have come together to worship God. Rather than curse God for their misfortune, they're there to worship him for his goodness. In the midst of their loss, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of an unknown future, they have come to sing hymns of hope and pray prayers of praise. And after a few moments of witnessing all of this, this young woman looks at Ken and Kurt, and she's got this little grin on her face, and she says, you have asked how this will play out. How will they survive? And these are her words. By faith, only by faith. And over the last few weeks, as we've made our way through Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4, we've been talking about the incredible power of faith. Last week, Pastor Ben had talked about that faith is so powerful that, that God declares sinners like you and I righteous in his sight, not by the things that we actually do, but by our faith. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about this justification that comes through faith that creates in us such great assurance of right standing with God, both in the present and in the future, that, that you and I, we can withstand anything that ultimately comes our way. So let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. You can pull it up on your smartphone app. It'll also 
be on the big screen. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And if you were able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask that you would do so. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, in this particular passage, it contains some very familiar verses, but it also contains four assurances that flow from you and I being justified by God through faith and not our actions. I want to give these to you right up front, and then we're going to kind of expound on them a little bit as we go. First of all, justification by faith, it tells us here that that it gives us the assurance of having peace with God. It gives us the insurance that we can be at peace with God. The second thing that it does, it gives us the assurance that we continually have access to God's grace. That grace isn't just a one-time thing that God gives us, but that he continues to give us grace throughout the entirety of our life. Number three, that we get the assurance through our justification of faith that when we die, we will ultimately spend eternity with God in heaven. And then finally, we get this uh, amazing earthly experience or this earthly assurance that we can have hope in the midst of suffering. And so we're going to unpack each one of those. Uh, The first is that we have this assurance of peace with God. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that verse, there is a transition that happens here in Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first four chapters here in the book of Romans, Paul has has laid the groundwork for the balance of the letter. And inside of this groundwork, he has laid out, uh, I'm a math major, he's laid out four givens, basically, four four truths that he's laid out. And, And they are this. The first is, that God is holy, that that because he is holy, because he is set apart, because there is no sin in him, he he is absolutely 
worth all of our worship and all of our obedience. God is holy, and as a result of him being holy, he is worthy of our worship and our obedience. That's number one. The second uh, truth that he lays out is this, that there is this pervasive sinfulness in all of humanity that causes us to rebel against God and in turn worship everything but God. And we saw that in Romans chapter 1 where, where he says what? That, that people worship the creation rather than the creator. And, and, and you and I, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to worship things other than God. People worship money, sex, power, prestige, their education, their political party, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic class, you name it. People worship all kinds of things. It becomes the number one thing in their life. Whatever it is, whatever is the main focal point of our lives, that is what we ultimately worship. And the Bible is very clear about that, that humanity is sinful, and rather than worshiping God, it's going to worship anything else. Number three, that, that because of that, God has a righteous wrath against our sin because he sees our rebellion and our rebellion demands that it ultimately get punished. So God has this righteous wrath. And then finally, he lays out this beautiful thing that, that God gives us right standing through the grace of Jesus Christ that justifies us through faith. Now, up to this point, the Apostle Paul's ultimate goal has been, in the words of theologian Douglas Moo, to demonstrate the power of the gospel, the power of the good news, to put people who are locked up in sin and under sentence of God's wrath, that would be us apart from Jesus, into a right relationship with God. He's laying out the way that people can be in a right relationship with God through the preaching of the good news, God invites all people, both Jew and Gentile alike, to believe in Christ and to enter into this new relationship. That's what he's trying to communicate in the first four chapters. And now that we come into chapter five, we begin to see how we can be absolutely assured of our right standing before God, so much so that, that, that these assurance flow into different areas of our lives. And that that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that we are declared righteous by God. But here's the rub with all of that. If you're like me, it's easy to forget that we have been made righteous by faith. Because we end up blowing it. And the Apostle Paul says some things in Romans chapter 8, which we're going to get to a number of weeks down the road, but I want to give you a little foretaste of it. He says this to these Christians. He says, for I am sure, I'm sure, he's absolutely positive, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise. The problem is this. I have trouble believing that promise. Because what happens in my particular life is I succumb to these deep-seated, deep-rooted, persistent, difficult to escape sins that I so desperately want to be free of. 
and they happen. And I kick myself in the tail, and I'm like, how did I do that again? How in the world, God, God, I have done this so many times now. How in the world can you possibly forgive me? And so I forget that. On top of that, that not only do I think, do the things I shouldn't do, I fail to do the things that I'm supposed to do. God, God has, has these commands for us to be, be generous and loving and kind and quick to forgive. And, and, and there are times I don't do that. And it causes me to wonder, does God's spirit really live inside of me? And this cycle of doing the things that I shouldn't do and not doing the things that I shouldn't do, it keeps going on and on and on in my life. And I'm wondering, am I really becoming more like Jesus? But according to Romans chapter 5, I don't need to fear Romans 5.1, I don't need to fear because I've repented of my sins and I've received Christ as my Lord and Savior. And if you've done that, you too don't need to fear. You see, Paul tells us because we've been justified by faith in Christ, we now have what? Peace with God. And we need to understand that, that this is not we have the peace of God but we have peace with God. In other words, when you have the peace of God, it's a subjective feeling, one that comes and goes. Many times it's based on our circumstances. But when you have peace with God, that is an objective fact, something that is independent of our circumstances. And because we've been justified by faith, we're no longer God's enemies. We're no longer at war with him. He, he is not going to, to crush us because we're no longer opposed to him. We're actually his children. And while he might discipline his children out of love, he will never destroy his children out of anger and wrath. And that is an assurance that comes from God. But that assurance of being in peace with God isn't just the absence of hostility with God. It's also the state of being in a harmonious relationship with God and a harmonious relationship with others. It's the shalom of the Old Testament. It's this deep, pervasive peace, one of completeness and well-being and absolute reconciliation where everything is right in the world, that, that my horizontal relationships are good and my, my, or, yeah, my vertical relationships are good and I fly airplanes. And, and, and my horizontal relationships are good. And it's going through life knowing full well that God's love for us is unwavering. His plan, it's good. Even if it's really, really hard, and his protection for us is unassailable. And then it's allowing that knowledge to actually work in our lives so much so that it steadies us, it comforts us, it encourages us, and it controls us in the midst of this unsteady world. Yet that's not the way that a lot of us live. A lot of us don't live like we are at peace with God. And as a result, what happens is we live in fear and uncertainty and anxiety. 
we're afraid of the future, we're afraid of all of the uncertainties and challenges that come with, with living in a world that's in the midst of a pandemic, we're afraid of this ever-changing culture that, that, that we have really lost control over, we're afraid of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, thinking the wrong thing. But here's what makes it even worse. If that's not bad enough, we act out of those fears. Because most of the time when you're afraid, there's an action that comes with it. And when we act out of fear, we do really bad, stupid things. Out of our fear, we, we attack Christian brothers and sisters who don't view things the same way that we view things. We don't take even a moment to consider the possible ramifications of when we've left our thumbs go crazy for about 30 seconds and get ready to press that send button. We don't stop and think, what is actually going to happen once I press that button? We live lives of judgmentalism, quick to ignore the, that massive log that's sticking out of our eye as we go and point out the little speck that's sticking in someone else's eye. And if any of that describes you, and sadly there are times that describes me, I would challenge us to turn our eyes from the complexity and the confusion of our circumstances and the chaos of our culture under the sure, to the surety of our Savior who says this in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's how God wants us to live. In peace. Not in fear. Not in anger. Not in retribution. But in peace with God and peace with others. But peace with God isn't the only assurance that flows with, with being justified by faith. We also have this continual access to the grace of God. Look at verse two. He says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now in order to fully understand this, you gotta understand what the word access means and you gotta understand what, what the phrase in this grace in which we stand means. Now, the term access that is being used here uh, denotes the manner in which someone has access to a president or a king. It's like you show up at the White House gate and you show them, hey, you know, I'm Mike Leonzo, here's my little ID, gate flies open. You go up the steps into the White House, you make your way to the Oval Office, you see the, the President's secretary right there, they say, hey, Pastor Mike, how you doing? President Biden's waiting for you to come in the doors. You open the doors, you got access to... Really? <laughs> Kathy and I need to have a conversation. It's like, what is this thing? At least you know that my t-shirt is soft. That's crazy. I have never had, in 21 years, that's never happened. It's called a wardrobe malfunction. All right, where in the world am I? Oh, I was in Joe Biden's office. That's where I was at, right? 
But yeah, it's this special privilege you have, right? I could have never got in with a dryer sheet hanging out my sleeve. Oh my, goodness gracious. Wait until I get home, no. Well, I, I, no, yeah, that is exactly right. I always have. She is great about that, as a matter of fact. I help with that, though, by the way. I just want to go on record. I actually even have a text on my phone where she thanked me on Friday for folding all the clothes. So I can prove that I do that. So, Yeah, so you've got this special privilege. That's what he's talking about. You've got access to the special privilege. But it's not just a one-time privilege. Because what, what it says that, that we have obtained access, and the, and the verb here that is obtained is in something called the, uh, the perfect tense. And what that is in, in the Greek is that it is a past action that continues on indefinitely. And so it's not like we have one-time access, but we have continuing access. And what do we have access to? We have continually access not to God. That's not what he says. We do have access to God, but that's not what he's talking about here. He says we have access to something else. We have access to this grace in which we stand. So what Paul is saying is that fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ live in a state of continual grace. God doesn't just give us grace when he saves us. He continues to give us grace throughout the balance of our lives. He provides us grace day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Think about that for a moment. Every time we blow it, if we have received Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, his grace covers our sin. The other day I was talking to uh, a person who, who, who means a whole lot to me, and we're, we're on the telephone, and this individual, they were, just, uh, they were just lamenting about how they feel like they're, they're, they're failing God, and, and, and this person's in ministry, and, you know, just like they just don't measure up. And it was not like these, you know, big, you know, ministry-destroying sins or anything like that. But it was just this, this state of constant, just like, I'm not living the way that God wants me to live. And, and I, I'm listening to this, and I, I know this person's life, and I'm like, you know, you are so good at preaching the gospel to others, telling them about the goodness of God and how his, his grace covers all of our sins. But the person that you fail to preach the gospel to is yourself. You never tell yourself that Jesus' sins, or Jesus' sins, that's a big mistake. Gosh, that Jesus' grace covers your sin. Somehow you think that you've got to work to earn that, and you don't. You and I, we live in this continual state of grace where our sins are forgiven. Now, now, please don't misunderstand me. This is not a license to sin. If you see it that way, if you see it like I can just do whatever I want and Jesus' grace is going to cover me, you, you got a problem because we, we are called to be absolutely grieved by our own sin. 
When in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says what? Blessed are those who mourn. That, 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 that mourning that he's talking, it's mourning for our sin. We're blessed when we are grieved by our sins. And if we just keep doing it over and over and over again, telling ourselves all along, well, Pastor Mike told me that I live in a consistent state of grace so I can do whatever I want. I would argue you are probably not saved. Our sins should grieve our hearts in the way that it grieves God's hearts. And if it doesn't, we need to ask ourselves, was my profession of faith truly genuine? Or I am a false convert, or am I a false convert who, who is continuing to be actually an enemy of God? You see, this assurance of consistent access to God's grace, it's a beautiful promise for those who are truly saved yet struggle with sin. And it is horrifically deadly for those who aren't truly saved and who use it as a license to rejoice in their own sin. So this is what we've got so far. As Christian men and women who have been declared righteous and just through faith. We have the assurance of living in peace with God, and we have the assurance of living in continual access to God's grace. But if that's not enough, there's more. Look again at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained full access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is when we are in eternity with God in heaven. In other words, we not only have assurances in the present, there are assurances that are waiting for us ultimately in the future. Now this will happen in one of two ways. Way number one, which is the way that it's happened for all Christians from this point backwards and probably from this point forward for at least some period of time, is that you draw your last breath. And your soul departs your body and you are in the presence of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us what happens. He says this, So we are always of good courage because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In other words, we're, we're, our, when our soul is in our body, it is not in the presence of God in heaven. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we would prefer for our soul to be with God ultimately in heaven. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So when we are away from the body, we are at home with the Lord. We are in the presence of God's glory. But that's not the only way that we might end up in glory. There is another way, because there will be a day when Jesus comes back. And this is what Jesus says. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give, give light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and, they, and he, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see, no matter what happens, whether we die prior to Jesus' return or whether we are alive for Jesus' return, 
the fact that we have been justified by faith provides us an assurance that we will spend eternity with God in heaven. And this brings us to the fourth assurance that flows from being justified by God through faith. And I think this is one of the most beautiful things of all. Not that the other ones are lacking by any stretch of the imagination. But there is the assurance of hope in the midst of suffering. Look at verses three through five. He says, not only that, in other words, not just the things that I just talked about. He says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I want you to notice what happens here. After articulating these three amazing assurances that come from us being justified by faith, Paul takes things, I believe, to the next level by saying, if you think this stuff is amazing, let me show you something else that is incredible, one that our world simply can't understand. And what is that fourth one? It's that you and I, because we are justified by faith, we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering in the same way that those Haitians were rejoicing in the midst of their suffering after the earthquake. Now, our world does not understand this because our, our, our world is, uh, it loses its mind because what our world does is our world brings suffering into the world. We do that in lots of different ways. We, we do that in, in wars. We do that in, in racist attitudes. We do that through greed. We do it uh, through lots of different ways. We bring suffering into the world. Yet what is our world always trying to do? It's trying to eliminate suffering. And here Christians come along and, and, and say that we are to rejoice in our suffering. The world's like, what are you talking about? Why in the world should I re rejoice in my suffering? You see, our world thinks that suffering is always negative that there's no purpose to it, that it's something to be avoided at all costs. But that's not a biblical view of suffering. Paul looks at suffering, and what does he do? He exalts suffering. He sees a greater purpose in the suffering. He sees it as something that should be embraced because it produces something. And he says this, we rejoice in our suffering, and then he lays out a very reasoned argument why he rejoices in suffering. And the first thing he says is this, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance is the ability to withstand pressure, distress, fatigue, or strain. And you don't get endurance without suffering, because suffering is what actually creates endurance. You can't wake up one morning and say to yourself, hmm, I have led a sedentary lifestyle for the first 29 years of my life, and today I'm going to run a marathon. That doesn't happen, right? What do you have to do? You, you've got to get up, and, and you've got to try to run a little bit, and maybe you, you make it a block, and then maybe you've got to walk 
for, you know, the next 15 blocks or whatever it takes to, to make up a mile. And then you're done that day. And then you got to come back the next day. And now it's raining and you got to get up and you got to, you know, run two blocks. And then you, you walk a little longer and then you run another two blocks. And so you're in the midst of the heat and the cold and the rain and the snow. Your muscles hurt. You get sick. But every day in the midst of that suffering, what's happening? You're getting stronger. And, and, and we're able to endure in the midst of that. And the same holds true for things like battling cancer or trying to save your marriage or dealing with kids that are losing their minds or working in a toxic environment. You see, it all involves suffering. And, and, and the more you experience, the more you press on, despite the pain, the more that you can ultimately endure. And many of you, you understand that. Now, coming out of endurance, endurance then produces something. Endurance produces character. And the Greek word here, it's been translated roughly character. It talks about the, the result of being tested, the quality of being approved, or proof that we stood the test. That's what character is. Now, many of you know I've got three adult children. I've got Mike, who's my oldest. Mike is 30, soon to be 31, and just the 28th, which is, oh my goodness, two days from now. Uh, John is my middle guy. I think he's 28, if I'm not mistaken. And Nicole is my young one. She's 24. And... Uh, out of all of my kids, when I look back at their growing up years, it seems as if things always came harder to Mike than the rest of my kids. It's not like John and Nicole didn't have struggles in their lives or don't continue to have struggles because they do. But for some reason, one reason or another, it always seemed like Mike was constantly facing challenges in his life. And, and, and he would get so incredibly frustrated. And, you know, I tried to be a good parent. I, I did the, the best that, that I could. And, and I, would, I would come to Mike and I would be like, dude, I know, I know this is hard. I, I know this sports thing is not working out the way that you like. I know that this relationship is not working out the way that you want. I, I know that your desire to go to this college isn't working out. I know, I know that these things are hard. But I'm telling you, Mike, God is building your character in the midst of this. And I'm telling him this, and I'm telling him this, and he's hearing, and I'm sounding like a broken record. And, and I can remember one day, he was probably, you know, a junior or senior in high school, and I just got done doing the whole, you know, God's building your character speech. And, and he looks me right in the eye. You know, he was probably, you know, five foot ten, you know, 140 pounds soaking wet. And he looks me right in the eye and he, he you know, he straightens up and he's got tears running down his cheeks and his voice is shaking a little bit, but there's a, a, a tinge of anger in his voice. And he says, Dad, I am tired of having my character built. But now, 
on the other end of all of those struggles through elementary school and high school and college and into those early, you know, 20-something years, on the other side of that, what, what has happened is God has forged an incredible young man of character because he has been through the crucible of adversity. He has seen... He has seen God's provision in the midst of the pain. And he has experienced God's faithfulness in the midst of failures. And he has been comforted by God in the crises of life. And as such, he has come to know God in a much more intimate way than if he would have never, ever struggled. That's just the way that it works. And I have seen the same thing in the lives of many of you here at Living Water. Over the last 21 years, I've watched people bury their wives and husbands, and they've been married for 50 years. I can remember a day in the, the NICU at the Hershey Medical Center, when one of my dearest friends held one of his triplets in his hand, and we watched him draw his last breath. It was like watching my friend hand his baby into the hands of Jesus. I have seen the struggles that you guys have gone through. Marriages blowing up, spouses being abusive, losing jobs where you were doing a good job, you don't understand what happened, homes foreclosed on, one thing after the next, life-threatening diseases, economic hardship, relational struggles, all kinds of things. The list goes on and on. And what God is doing in the midst of all of that pressure and strain is he is building character into you, creating extraordinary men and women of faith. And it would not have occurred if you haven't suffered. We want to be so far away. We don't want suffering to come into our lives. But many, many times, that suffering is ultimately a blessing because from that suffering that has endurance and character comes hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. Where does hope come from? It comes from suffering. There's an amazing, all the books of the Bible are amazing, but one of my, my favorite books of the Bible is Lamentations. And if, if you read Lamentations, you gotta, be, you gotta be ready for a rocky road, okay? Because the first two chapters and then chapter three, the first 20 verses, it's brutal. We're not sure who wrote Lamentations, but, but his life was bad. His, his country is getting destroyed. There's famine. People are getting deported. People are dying. There's, uh, uh, there's, uh, infestation of, of, you know, locusts or whatever. And, and on top of it, he's suffering. And he goes through all of this stuff about how bad his life is. And, you know, you're, 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 you're like dying here. And then you come to verse 21. 
of Lamentations chapter 3. And it's like the world changes. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. That is the hope that comes from suffering. It is a hope that is assured because he tells us what? That God is pouring his love into us through his spirit. And it's something that should should help us to press on every single day. Now, there, there is so much more that we can talk about. And time doesn't permit, but let me pull this together by reading you the, the last couple verses, verses 6 through 11. After he gives us these assurances, then, then Paul goes and, and, and he shows you how this thing actually played out, how that we can actually have these assurances. He says, for while... We were still weak. Where we couldn't save ourselves, fix our problems. Where we were easy prey for the enemy. At the right time, 2,000 years ago, at the right exact moment in time, the incarnation happens. And then, after that, some 31, 33 years, at just the right moment, the crucifixion happens. Christ dies for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. What's he saying? Nobody dies for anybody else. This is... This is This is otherworldly. And then he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, well, we're doing nothing to deserve this. Christ dies for us. Think about that. I mean, when when someone's sinning against you, You're not even content to get a hangnail for them, let alone die. But that's what God does. We are sinning. We are in his face, flipping him off. And he dies for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. From what? The wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, now that we're friends, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. 
where do all of these assurance flow from? They flow from the fact that we have this incredibly kind, loving, amazing, grace-filled Savior. While we were sinning against him, rather than destroy us, which is exactly what we deserved, God the Father destroys God the Son, crushes him for our iniquities. That's amazing. But it's not just the cross, it's the empty tomb. Because if we got saved from God's wrath but not given eternal life, what is the good? That's the beauty of this. Those assurances flow all from what God has done and nothing from what we've done. And so... We can rejoice even when it's hard because we know that there is purpose behind it. And we know that there is hope at the end because the tomb was ultimately empty. And all the pain of this world will be radically eclipsed by the glory of heaven. And just so we don't forget it, he gives us this. He gives us this gift. God says, I'm going to create something that is going to tie Christians together from the past to the future. It's going to tie Christians together from the east and the west and the north and the south. It's going to be something common, tying things together for people who are from different socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities, different political views, different denominations. I'm going to create something that we all have in common. And so he creates this gift. And in it, he gives two simple elements, a piece of bread and fruit of the vine. And they're there as a reminder, what? Of the crucifixion, because it represents his, his broken body, it represents his shed blood, but it's there for another reason, not only to remind us of the crucifixion, but to remind us he's coming back, that there is hope, that the grave is empty, that Jesus is alive, and, and that, that we will be able to spend eternity with him in the future, and that he, through his spirit, will be with us in the present. And so that's why we do this. It's an opportunity to confess our sins. It's an opportunity to rejoice in grace. It's an opportunity to look forward to the future. And it's an opportunity to remember that, that, that we at Living Water are part of something so much bigger. And so what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And then we're going to take a little time to just sit here and kind of spend time with God. And then what you can do is make your way out the, around the outside aisles, these outside aisles, and then you can get back to your chairs through the, 
through the inside aisle. So we'll be, you'll be coming this way, that way, and this way, that way. Uh, so uh, before I pray, if you're here today and you have not confessed your sins and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, th this is meaningless to you. And, and I'm not trying to be a jerk or an idiot or anything like that, but I would humbly just ask, just don't take these elements. Sit where you're at. There, there's no shame in any of that. Just stay where you're at. And I would encourage you, pray, God, if Jesus is the real deal, if he really exists, God, if you're really there, show yourself to me. And I believe he will do that. I believe he will do in your life what he did for that young girl earlier today. I believe that he will break through time and space. He will reveal himself. And you will be so overwhelmed by who he is that you can't stop coming to him in faith. So please, if you've yet to come to faith, just kind of hang there, spend time with God. It's cool. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these folks. And thank you for this meal. Lord, we recognize there is nothing magical about these elements. Lord, they are a piece of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. But Lord, what they symbolize is so incredibly amazing. And Lord, as we eat that bread, and as we drink that juice, may we be reminded of the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf. May we be reminded, Heavenly Father, that we are no longer your enemy. May we relish in the fact that, Lord, your grace continues every single day, moment by moment. May we look forward to the day that we stand in your presence, whether we have to draw our last breath here or whether you call us to the sky. And Father, would you help us to always know that suffering has a purpose for a Christian and that the end of suffering, at the end of the endurance of the character comes hope and hope never, ever disappoints. So Lord, we come to you now as a church family, quiet of this place, doing business with you, we love you, Father. Amen.